So Nehemiah, they had finished the wall around the temple in 52 days. They had enemies all around. Just every device of Satan that you can think of was used to try to stop the building of the temple and was used to try to stop the building of the temple, but it uh, rather of the walls, but it was built up and... As soon as it was built, the people in chapter 8, they stood from morning until midday reading the Word of God there. And then in chapter 9, they gathered all themselves. And again, they, it's verse 3 of chapter 9 says, they read from the book of the law and another uh, group of them confessed and worshiped the Lord their God and then it says that the Levites stood up and prayed, and we got only about two-thirds through the prayer last time <laughs> before we, uh, we had to stop and worship. And so, but what it did in this prayer, and I understand this is the longest prayer in the Bible, what they did is they, they went through their history in this prayer. A lot of it was confession of sin. They're confessing on behalf of their forefathers. They're confessing and giving the reason to, uh, they're giving the reason that they uh, had gotten to the place where they were kicked out of Jerusalem, the temple had been destroyed. The city was destroyed. They were exiled in Babylon. But rather than blaming God for it, which so often we do when the Lord puts us in a low place, they're just uh, recounting their history of rebellion and sin. And verse 26, that's where we're going to begin this evening, says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their backs. And so many times we try to minimize our sin. But what we're really doing is we're casting the law of God behind our backs. And it says, And killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations, meaning they provoked God. Um, there was someone I was with in the last couple of weeks, and they described to me something that they had been doing, uh, some kind of sin they were doing. I said, you've got to be careful. You're tempting God is what you're doing. And that is an expression from the Old Testament that you're tempting God to judge you. You're, it's almost like you're saying, come on, God, judge me, judge me. By your sin, and that's what you do and I do when we sin. We tempt Him to judge us, and eventually He will because He's a faithful, loving, merciful Father. And, then it, and so when it says they worked great provocations, that means they did bad stuff to provoke God to judge them. Verse 27, Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them, and in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers 
who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Now time and time and time again, you hear people say, well, I'm not into the Old Testament. I'm not into the Old Testament God. And uh, they say, I'm into the New Testament. That's about grace. Let me tell you, I've never met, and I know you guys, I know some of you have heard me say this. I apologize in advance if it's the 50th time you heard me say this, but I've never, I, I have not ever met ever a person who truly understands the grace of God who is not also a student of the Old Testament. I mean, you want to learn about God's grace, you read the Old Testament. How many times God forgave Israel. How bad it was. What he did, for example, with Ahab, the most wicked king in the north. He cried out for mercy and he got it. This is after this man had led the whole nation into idolatry with, um, uh, with, with the Baals. And then in the south, in Judah, who was the most wicked king in Judah. Say it all at once. Ah! Who was the most wicked king who ever lived in the south? Reigned for, that's right, Manasseh. Reigned for 52 years. It says he was so evil, the innocent blood flowed from one side of Jerusalem to another. Reigned for 50 years. Can you imagine living under that king? He was taken away by the Assyrians to where? So wherever it was in Assyria, and he repented. And he cried out for mercy. And of course, God is not going to answer him because he's so wicked, right? Wrong. He actually, Manasseh, this man, the wickedness that is described, what he did, he repented. He said he went back to Jerusalem and, and, and actually started reforms and, and tried to start undoing the mess he had created in the previous 50 years. But, but uh, he's a God of mercy. And here we go again. They're recounting the mercy uh, uh, of the Lord. End of verse 27. You gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Verse 28. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Don't try to tell me that the Old Testament is not about grace and mercy. <laughs> Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies so they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law, yet they acted proudly, did not heed your commandments, sinned against your judgments, judgments which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders. Is there anything worse that you can do with the Lord? I mean, you know, there's like hardcore screaming curses at God. That's bad. And then there's something which arguably is worse, just shrugging your shoulders. God, who cares? It says they shrugged their shoulders. Many in the city today, many of us before we came to Christ. That described our relationship with God. We shrugged our shoulders. God, whatever. It says he, they stiffened their necks. They would not hear. Verse 30, yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets. 
I, I, I say this a lot too, I'm never, never ceases to amaze me that after the split of Israel, 10 tribes to the north, two tribes to the south, in the south you had about nine good kings, they were great kings, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Asa, Josiah. In the north, they had no good kings ever. Who did God said send his two heavyweights to over a period of, I don't know, like 60 years? Elijah and Elisha. He sends them to the north. And they never repented. But that just shows the God of mercy. God is a God of mercy. Let me tell you, when you fall flat on your face, how many times do I have to hear another counseling session? As long as I'm a pastor, I'm going to continue to hear this. I've done this bad stuff for so long. How could I turn back now? It's not fair. Read the Bible. Read the whole Testament. It, uh, it, God is a God of mercy. It's His name. Mercy is a name of God. He can't go against who He is. His name is who He is. You cry out for mercy, God will hear. And, and, and one of the things He does, He sends the prophets to even the ones that for years and years and years and years, uh, they, they don't obey Him, but He still sends people to try to turn them back. It says in the middle of verse 30, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume. And you, you did not utterly destroy them. Nor forsake them. For you are God, gracious, merciful. You are God, gracious and merciful. Verse 32, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenants and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. Our kings, our princes, our, our, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day, However, you are just in all that has befallen, befallen us. You have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. So clearly a confession. We brought this all on ourselves. So oftentimes also in counseling, I will be talking with someone who uh, they're complaining about their wife or they're complaining about their husband or they're complaining about um, these, uh, the, the, the folks in their lives that are giving them misery and it's been going on for years and years and years because of a sin they did one, five, ten, fifteen years ago. And I, 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 I literally have to say this to them. In fact, I did it the Sunday before last. I said, you brought all this on yourself. It doesn't justify people not forgiving you. It, do, it doesn't justify um, people continuing to be, to, 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 to sort of lash out at you. It doesn't justify that, but so important that you recognize you brought all of this on yourself. I don't know how many times I've been, I, I speak to, to fathers over the years. 
And they're so upset because their, uh, their sons or daughters, they're just complaining on and on about their behavior. And, and I have to tell them, you brought this all on yourself. Same thing in certain cases with mothers. And, and that doesn't justify their kids' behavior. But this is the posture that God wants us in always. It, it, it says in verse 33, so important that you're always telling the Lord, you are just in all that has befallen, we'll say me, for you have dealt faithfully, but I have done wickedly. It's so important that we, we bring that before the Lord on a regular basis when certain things that have, we've done in our past are continuing to haunt us. Doesn't mean that it, we still have to stay in that place of utter, total dependence humility and meekness before the Lord. Verse 34, neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law nor heeded your commandments and your testimony with which you testified against them for they have not served you in their kingdom or in many good things that you gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. And so there's just a recognition that though God gave them great abundance, that did not help them turn back to the Lord. The Bible does say in Romans 2.4, the kindness of God leads to repentance. But some, sometimes even kindness. We're so hard-headed. We're so rebellious. Even God's kindness, we don't turn back. Verse 33, here we are, servants today. And the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants in it. So remember, they were kicked out for 70 years. Now they're, 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 they've come back, and they're like, you brought us back. We didn't deserve it. We're back in the land of Israel. Verse 37, and it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins, also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. So at this point, though they're back in the land, they're not a sovereign nation anymore. So under King David and all the, the, the uh, kings after him, they were their own nation. But now they're back in the land, and although they live there, there's an emperor of another country over them, just like Jesus at the time of Jesus, the Jews also, they weren't in charge of their own land. The Romans uh, were in charge. Verse 38, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. So what's going on right now is that they're going to make a covenant to the Lord that they will obey him. And they're going to list specific sins, that specific commandments that they have and their forefathers miserably failed with, and they're going to write these things out, and they're going to promise the Lord that they will do them. And it says in chapter 10, verse 1, now those who place their seal on the documents were, and it lists the people who we haven't read the document yet. We're going to. It's, that's what this chapter is. But these are the people who actually put their seal on it. So think of that little wax thing, the signet ring. Put a little wax, and you have your family 
insignia on there and you go like that. that that's what's going on here. And the first guy to put it on was Nehemiah himself. And then it just lists off uh, different names of people. I'm not going to name them all, but uh, at the end of verse 8, it says, it says these were the priests, so some priests were part of it. Uh, verse 9, there were Levites uh, who also um, were part of, again, putting their seal on this document that we're just about to read. We're not there yet. Um, verse 10, their brethren, and it lists a bunch of probably leading families um, in the area. Verse 14, the leaders of the people, other people. And, and, it, and, and so they, they create this document. We're about to read it. And there's all these seals of these men who are saying, yes, we're going to do this. We and our family, we will serve the Lord. Remember, that's from Joshua. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And they're putting their, their ring, the little wax on the ring, and um, that's what they're doing with this document. Verse 28, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. And this is what this document said. It starts listing out these sins that they had miserably failed with. And they're, they're basically saying, we're not going to ever violate these things again, is what they're going to say. And so it starts off with, they promised that we would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. So the first one is no intermarriage. Now, I get a little self-conscious because I've been teaching for so long that, and I've talked about this so much. I get a little self-conscious. Am I really going to talk about this again? Uh, but I will briefly 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Meaning, do not marry an unbeliever. That's what this first one is about. They had been intermarrying with other nations, which God doesn't have a problem with, as long as they're a worshiper of Jehovah. Problem is, they had been intermarrying with those who had not. And of course that always leads to a weakening of the people of God. And you know, I think of marriage and I just saw I just saw Vlad. Vlad, how long have you been married, man? A couple days? No, it's a couple weeks. Yeah, it's flying by. <laughs> Two weeks, it's flying by. 
And it's marriage, a wedding ceremony is a, an absolute joyous thing, but there, there is always that sense in, that I have of, wow, I wonder if they really understand how long of a commitment this is. I mean, it's not a few years, it's decades. And let me tell you, in decades, a lot of stuff happens. I mean, a lot of stuff. And the, 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 the feelings of sort of romantic love and the exhilaration of that beautiful man or beautiful woman before you, wow, this is going to last forever. I just know it in my heart. I tell you, that is not going to get you very far. What's going to get you very far is if both man and woman are committed to the Word of God and they have a fear of God and they're unwilling to compromise the Word of God. I've never seen a divorce involving a man or a woman who both have a love for the Word of God and for the presence of God. Never seen it. It's indestructible. But on the other hand, you marry an unbeliever who doesn't believe that this is the Word of God, it's going to be really hard. Really hard. Make it when that trouble comes. And it will come. What did we learn on Sunday morning? It says, uh, Philippians chapter 1. It, says, it's, it said what? Which, does anyone remember the third thing where it says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Number one was for unity. Number two was we, in the face of oppositions, we move forward. And number three was what? Suffering, that's right. And it says it was gifted to you. You've been blessed by God not only to believe but to suffer for him. But when that trial of suffering comes and you're not married to a believer, I gotta tell you, it's not easy. And, 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 and so the first one, they're committing to not give our daughters as wives to the people of the, uh, of the land. But let me tell you, when you have your daughter in front of you and she, she grew up in the church and, and she has this guy and, the, and she's like, he's so wonderful, he's so sweet. I know he doesn't believe, he's not a Christian, but he's so dedicated, he's so smart. I love him, I love him, I love him. That's not an easy thing, you know. That's not an easy thing to say, no, no, sorry, I'm not giving my blessing. It's not an easy thing at all. It might not also be easy if, 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 if it's a daughter and, and, and the guy has a ton of, is, comes from a, a family of a lot of money or vice versa. That's not an easy thing. Number, the second thing, verse 31, if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. And so this is basically saying we're going to honor the Sabbath. We're not only going to honor the, the Sabbath day and make it a day dedicated to the Lord, but it says we're going to honor the Sabbath year. That's what it refers to when it says 
um, we will forgo the seventh year's produce in the Old Testament law. This is not a law that is, um, it was fulfilled with Jesus Christ, uh, thank God. Uh, but uh, every seventh year, they stopped um, their harvest. They, they didn't go out and harvest the land. They just, uh, it was a Sabbath year. The entire year was a Sabbath year to the Lord. And the 70 years of exile, Jeremiah 25 says, it, God chose 70 years because for 490 years, Israel had never obeyed that law. And they're saying here, well, we're going to obey it. And then they also say, and the exacting of every debt. So at the end of seven years, they also had to, had to release people of their debt. Verse 32 and we made ordinance for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God. Now, this is going to be a theme throughout. Um, there was also an Old Testament uh, law requiring uh, a certain uh, amount of money, one-third of a shekel, to be given to God. They had stopped doing that. And they, they, they say here, we're going to start doing this. Verse 33, and for the showbread, for the regular grain offerings, for the regular burnt offerings of the Sabbath, the new moons, and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings, to the make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. In other words, they had stopped giving money to pay for the offerings that were made at the temple. And they're saying, no more. We are going to give that money for the offerings. Now, what's really interesting, at the very beginning of Nehemiah, the emperor Artaxerxes says, says, I will pay, out of the king's treasury, I will pay the money that is used to buy offerings. I will pay for that. But it was still in the law that they're supposed to pay. And so they didn't say, well, you know, the king, the emperor's paying for this, and so I'm not going to do it. No, they commit to doing this. And the, and the church still does that to this, to this day, unfortunately. Like today, you know, one of the things that, to me, is, has weakened the church tremendously, there's so much government money helping everybody that the church says, let the government take care of the people. Is let them take care of the people. Where we're told that we're supposed to be hospitable and, and we're supposed to be taking care um, of our people. And, 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 and so there's just this mentality. It was a blessing um, to be up in, in, in Maine with a pastor who said, we were so blessed with that family in your church who took care of people from our church. I couldn't think of who it was until I remember. Nadia and Matt took in a family uh, into their home. And, and how many people were there? Like, so, so four kids and, and, and a mom or a dad or both were there. They all went in there. And what a blessing to hear that. Like, well, you know, and I've actually heard a pastor one time say, well, we have hotels today that people can stay in. Well, you know, that, that's a weakening of the church we are told to be hospitable. There, hospitable. There is a, um, there's a place for hotels, uh, but, but, um, but that doesn't, just because the, 
the government, the point is just because the government is doing something doesn't mean that we don't step up to the plate. Uh, so in verse uh, 34, we cast, lots among, we cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at the appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. So a wood offering. So in the law, Leviticus 6.12, the fire under the altar for burnt offerings was never supposed to go out. Like, never. You can read it. Leviticus 6.12. But this thing, part of the sin of the history of Israel is no fire under the, burnt, under the altar of burnt offering. Why? Because the people were spending their money on themselves. And not on the altar of burnt offering. Which, by the way, all those offerings were a foreshadowing of the burnt offering that took place on the cross. Jesus Christ. Burnt offering represented the whole whole animal was consumed by fire. And, and so Jesus, his whole life consumed on the cross. Verse 35, And we made ordinance to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of God, to the priests um, who minister in the house of the Lord, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offering, the, first, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our lands to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities, and the priests the descendants of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. Verse 39, for or because the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain of the new wine and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, we will not neglect the house of our God. So they stopped giving financially. There was so many better things to use their money for than to bring them to the house of God. Let me tell you, Calvary Chapel, and I know I had three sermons at the beginning of this year about this. What you're doing with your hand, you have your hand on some ministry, like every single one of you in this room is in one ministry or another, is the most important thing in the entire world. There is nothing more important than what happens in the local church. You do a study of the Bible, and I have all these verses listed out. I, I put them up on a Sunday morning one time, and unfortunately, I, I, there's too many of them. I shouldn't have put too many. But you do a study of the Bible. The Bible says God is seeking his glory. And ever since Jesus Christ died on the cross, resurrected, and then ascended into heaven, 
his way of getting glory, his, his principal way of getting glory is the church of Jesus Christ. The church is called in 2 Corinthians, the church is the glory of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, it says, by the church, he will be glorified. And this is over and over again. And, and, and the church is which gives salt and light to a city. The church is, is, is what prevents a city from, from being judged and being torched by, by judgment from the Lord. The church is what sends out missionaries to the whole world for God's glory. The, the church is what um, that we are read. We read in John chapter seven that the unity, the oneness between brothers and sisters in the church loving each other, it says twice that when the world sees that, they will know that the Father sent the Son. I mean, tell you, you can do a study of church and the importance of the church, and there's nothing more important in the whole world. I'm just telling you. And I tell you, it's a tragedy. When I came up here to Massachusetts, or I should say I returned here in 1997, I read an article, two churches a month were closing down in New England. Two churches a month, uh, not, sorry, Massachusetts. Two churches a month. And we all know with the story of Freddie's church, 1,200 people in that church got down to like 15 to 20. And that's just like, a and we were regular in prayer for them, and good things are happening up there, by the way. But, but, but that's, that's where they had gotten. That's right here where it says, we will not neglect the house of the Lord our God. That's what had happened. But, but they're committing here, we're not going to let that happen again. We're not going to let that happen again. That's what they're doing. Now, before we go into um, verse 11, uh, chapter 11, I will say this. I am, I am, as a general matter, opposed or rarely do I ever recommend you, me, or anyone else make this kind of commitment. I'm never going to get drunk for the rest of my life. I'm never going to commit adultery. I'm never going to tithe for the rest. Because there's just something of the flesh that gets involved in, in, in a commitment like that. It's much better just to say, I'm going to stay close to Jesus Christ. I'm just going to stay close to him. I'm not going to make commitments that I'm going to break. I'm just going to stay close to Jesus Christ. That's the best thing to do. It really is. You do that, and you'll be obeying all the law. <laughs> the Bible says that in Galatians, it says the whole law can be summed up in one commandment: love, love your neighbor. But and love your we love our neighbor because we first do what? Love God. He says the two most important commandments are love God and love our neighbor. And and the best thing to do is I I I, I would steer you away from making commitments because it te our flesh tends to get involved with those. They're going to they're going to break every one of these within 15 years. Can you believe that? We're going to read about it in two chapters. This is what, chapter 10, chapter 13. They break all these. They had religion, but they did not have... What, nice and loud, Eldon. Shout that out. 
Wow, very good. I bet they heard that on live stream. He said relationship. They had religion, but they didn't have relationship. And when you have religion and you don't have relationship, you're going to break that commandment yet again that has beset you for so long. It's better just to seek the Lord. God, I want to love you, but I don't. My heart is corrupt. It's wicked. I want to love you more. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to get into that verse that somehow has been marginalized and cut out of people's Bible. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's not a suggestion. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a New Testament command is what it is. And it involves just seeking the Lord every day to love him. You do that, you're going to be obeying all these commandments. You will. And we're all, we will always sin, of course, until we get a glorified body. But it's very sad. They make, they, they, they make this covenant. They put their seal, their ring, you know, uh, on it with wax. And in chapter 13, we're going to read. I don't think we're going to get there tonight, but we're going to read. They're just going to break them all. But I tell you, I love that verse in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. It says this. Well, for verse 1 says, Seek those things that are above where Christ is, sit at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things um, above and not on things of the earth. But the next verse is what? Anyone know it? For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God that awesome or what you died and your life is hidden with christ and god you have that hidden life with jesus christ day by day you're going to be obeying the law you will i can just tell you right now the devil's going to fight as hard as he can to prevent you from having that developing and nurturing that hidden life but just like we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beat your body like, like Christ did and get to that hidden life. <laughs> uh, rather, beat your body like, um, like Paul did in 1 Corinthians 9 in order to have that, that hidden life with God. Chapter 11 of Nehemiah. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. Solomon, is there a, is there a water somewhere? Oh, Solomon's gone. <laughs> okay chapter 11 verse 1 now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem the holy city and nine tents were to dwell in other cities so what is this about they came back Remember, under Zerubbabel, they had come back and built the temple. Then, how long was it? 15 years or something? They, or, 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 or much longer than that. I don't remember. That. Years later, they came back and built a wall around the, 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 the temple. So Ezra is about the building of the temple. Nehemiah is about the walls around the temple. And what had happened was people were not living in Jerusalem. They weren't living in Jerusalem, and so 
There were very few people in the city. They had taken all the trouble. Thank you, Matt. They had taken all the trouble to build these walls, and there's very few people there. And people were out in villages in, in the area of, uh, of Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes in the south. But there were very few people actually living in Jerusalem. And uh, so they said, well, they're going to have to have people move in to Jerusalem. We didn't do all this in order to have Jerusalem deserted. And there's all kinds of biblical promises and things that revolve around the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a big deal, as we know. And Israel... uh, this, in this war now with, um, with the Palestinians, and, and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and, and, and of Israel as a result. And so, what did they do? They cast lots. And this is what they did in the Old Testament. We're never told, you know, we're, we're never told I know that in the New Testament that we're supposed to do that, although I know they chose, they, they chose the 12th apostle uh, they drew straws or something like that, uh, like that. But in the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And that is how we determine the will of God. The leading of the Holy Spirit and, of course, of course the Word of God. But they cast lots here uh, in the Old Testament, Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so... It says uh, they chose, based on lots, one out of ten per people, you were required to pick up and move and go into Jerusalem and live. guess they gave you a plot of land or something right inside the city. I tell you, if you kept that, if you kept that land, um, boy, today, worth a lot of money. But uh, I'm sure that, that, they, uh, that did not happen because Jerusalem was abandoned again after this by the Jews, but um, uh, verse 2 says, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell in Jerusalem. And this is a big deal. They're just coming along, and the, uh, Nehemiah and his guys show up and say, hey, it's been, uh, the, the Lord has decided that you need to move your family into Jerusalem. This is like a really big deal. But they did, and it says the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. That indicates to me that some of them said no, because it says who willingly offered themselves. It could be talking about in addition to the one out of ten. These, in verse two, are additional people. That, uh, so they populate Jerusalem here, and then they go through the... The, just the people who uh, actually move into Jerusalem. These are the, verse 3, these are the heads of the province who dwelt in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah, everyone dwelt in his own possession in their cities. Israelites, priests, Levites, Nethanim, the descendants of Solomon, servants. And also in Jerusalem dwelt some of the children of Judah and of the children of Benjamin. So now, they start listing out the different people who are living in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a big deal. Even Jesus himself says a prophet can't die outside or be killed or 
are fulfilled. He, he won't die outside of, uh, of Jerusalem. It's a big deal. So it starts listing um, all these people who are in Jerusalem. And, and first they list the, 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 the descendants of, uh, of Judah and Benjamin. Remember, those are the two tribes in the south. There's 12 tribes of Israel. Ten are in the north. Two are in the south. The north, those folks didn't go to Babylon. They were just scattered all around the world. They're really outside the picture now. Um, verse 10 talks about the priests who came into Jerusalem and dwelt there. Verse 15 talks about the Levites, meaning the temple workers, who came in Jerusalem and dwelt there. Verse 19 talks about the gatekeepers. And so 3,444 had to move wherever they were, uproot and go into Jerusalem. Verse 20, and the rest of Israel, of the priests and Levites, were in the cities of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. So you have a certain amount of people who came to Jerusalem, and that just says in verse 20, and the rest of the folks were outside, were outside um, of Jerusalem. Verse 21, but the Nephanim dwelt in Ophel, and Ziha and Jizba were over the Nethanim. Uh, you know, may not remember, but the Nethanim, who were they? That was under David, where the religious temperature of the country perhaps is at an all-time high under David. In other words, people were really obeying the Lord. They were seeking the Lord they were making their required offerings. They were bringing in their tithes. And guess what? There were not enough church workers. This is a good problem to have. We have it here at Calvary Chapel in the city. There were not enough church workers because, remember, the Levites, the descendants of Levi, were really the only ones permitted to do work in the temple and so what happened, David assigned these other people. Was it David or Solomon? I think it was David. Who They were called the Nethanim, and that, and that was to basically help out in the temple because there wasn't enough people to help out. And so it says, but the Nethanim dwelt in Ophel. That was a neighborhood within Jerusalem that was really near where the altar of burnt offerings were. So they would take the wood there and they would do uh, to, to, to burn and, 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 and other things like that. And so uh, verse 23 says, it was the king's command. Well, let me back up in verse 22 because Dan DeHart is right in front of me. And I, I, I don't want to get in trouble with Dan because this is about the worship and all the support that was given to the, the worship people, right? We give a lot of support for Dan. It says also the overseer of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mathaniah, the son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers in charge of the service of the house of God, verse 23, for it was the king's command concerning them that a certain portion should be for the singers a quota day by day. So this is how important, this is, all life is worship, right? Everything you do is wor should be worship. Brushing your teeth should be worship. In the, in the sense that whatever you do, you do as unto the Lord. You're, you're worshiping, you know, sitting in the bus, doing your work, but also doing 
church work is also wor- worship. But this is specifically about musical worship. And it says there was actually a quota at the king's command. Now, the king here, speaking of King David, David was a psalmist, which is a songist. He wrote songs, and he was into worship. Hard to emphasize the importance of musical worship. Bible says, let the word of God dwell in you richly, and let each of you share with each other psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And here there's a whole, there's a part of the budget is for these singers. Remember they were there 24 hours a day in the temple singing. I mean, that's the coolest thing. I tell you, I would like to go back and just hear these guys or show up there at three in the morning and just hear people singing. I mean, that's just an awesome thing. Worship's so important. And I tell you, it's a big adjustment when people go from, it's a big adjustment people when they're saved out of the world, they're going into a church, people are singing to God? You gotta be kidding me. This is weird. I, I think we get used to it sometimes. It's really, really weird for a bunch of people to be singing to God. It's weird. But it, what a great thing. As a person starts growing in the Lord and they realize the beauty of worship. I remember there was a group. I was just so entrenched in sort of the music of the, of the world in the 70s that I just really stayed away from all music. The first couple of years I was a Christian, there was, it just seemed, I, I, how am I going to do this? I mean, you know, music had such a bad, I don't know, is it connotation or something? But there was this group called Acapella. They were Acapella. It's, they didn't have any musical instruments that really brought Stephanie and me to a new place, just singing songs. And they had all kinds of cassettes, that's what it was at the time, and, and, and really did a great work there. Verse 24 says, Pethaniah, the son of Mesheth, the Pesel, something like that, of the children of Zerah, the son of Judah, was the king's deputy in all matters concerning the people. And that's referring to someone who was Artaxerxes' guy who was there representing uh, the people. And so there you have it. Uh, this next week, we, there's going to be an actual big feast dedicating the temple. But first, they dedicated themselves. So before the feast, which we're going to be in next week, chapter 12, chapters uh, 10, 11, really about dedicating themselves and setting up Jerusalem in such a way that it would bless the heart of the Lord. But why don't we pray now? Can we pray? Did I make a mistake in what I said? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. If I said they made a wall around the temple, I mean, very, very, very technically that's true, but the wall was around the city of Jerusalem in order to protect the temple which was inside. Because, I mean, how can you, how can you worship God without the fences against the enemies that are all around? Therefore, that is correct. Thank you, Stephanie.
for the, for the live stream. That's my wife just corrected me. You want, like Pastor Scott has said, listen to your wife. Listen to your wife, men. Uh, it's, uh, I meant the, the wall around Jerusalem.